0: Scaling up, some things to think about, um, is bigger really better. Um, everybody always thinks if I'm farming two acres that 10 acres is gonna be a whole lot better and that tractor is gonna be really nice. But uh, a lot of people don't think about all the headaches and really don't understand the cost of human capital or the cost of actual dollars. So um, just something that you should really think about before you take that next step. Um, goals, what are yours? Re- be really clear on that. Um, Sometimes it takes us a long time in life to figure out what our our goals are really about. And I recently was working with an executive coach, and he said something that's really stuck to me. If it energizes you, then it's probably something that would be worthwhile focusing on or doing. If it's not energizing you, then you probably should look at something else. So um, if you don't feel energized by going to work every day, then uh, maybe that's an opportunity to look around and see what other opportunities are there. Because believe me... There's been days when I've been two in the morning changing a belt on a Christmas tree baler laying in the mud while it's snowing outside. And I'm thinking to myself, what in the world am I doing? I could be home sleeping, but I'm, but it's still exciting. So um, yeah, go figure. Um, market, is there demand? So one of the big things that we can do as farmers, we do a really good job of is growing things. And we really don't do a good job of selling it or selling it for the right margin. So. A tip that an old farmer told me years ago was the rule of thirds. Whatever you sell it for, a third of that price should be the cost of harvesting and packing it. A third of it should be the cost of growing it, and a third of it should be profit. If you're not profiting a third on your selling price, you're probably not charging enough or you're growing something people don't want at the price that it costs to actually grow it. So just be thinking about that. Are your management and procedures, are you ready? Um, I see a ton of people that manage their management style as they go around and tell everybody what to do or they do it all themselves because nobody can do it as good as them. That's not a scalable model. Um, I work with tons of managers and I source them all over uh, the West Coast to operate properties that we find. And one of the first things I do is try to figure out who's making decisions on the farm. If it's collaborative, there's a chance that they can scale. If it's one person making all the, the decisions and if they make comments like,
1: oh, I just have to do things
0: myself, that's not going to work. It's just not a scalable model. And until people figure that out, um, they're going to be frustrated and the work, people that work for them are, will also be frustrated. And in capital, are you uh, positioned financially? Do you really know what it's going to cost you to take on more land? So... Um, Many people forget about measuring it, and if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. So just uh, wise stewardship is really important when you're uh, looking at scaling. So again, these are just more questions that I would ask. Um, on the tasks you're not good at, who can help you? Have you identified the list of uh, the people in your life or in your, around you that can help you do things that you're not good at? If you're not good at marketing, then find somebody that is and work together on that. If um, I've seen it a lot of times where a lot of small farmers will be in, this, in an area. One of them is really good at marketing and transportation, and so working collaboratively is a really great way to either not have to hire somebody but yet um, be able to accomplish you know, getting your stuff sold at a good price. Um, I was selling potatoes at farmer's markets in Portland, and we had listed them at 50 cents a pound, and I, I thought that was quite a bit of money. And it didn't sell a potato. This is like several weeks in, wasn't selling potatoes, wasn't selling potatoes, went home. I was talking to my wife about it. She said, you know, they're probably it's a perceived value issue. Put the price up to a dollar a pound and see what happens. I'm like, there's no way people are going to pay a buck a pound for potatoes. I mean, this is when you could buy 10 pounds of potatoes for a buck in the store. And I was growing everything you couldn't find in the store. That was our thing. We, we didn't grow russets. We didn't grow Yukon golds. You know, we, we grew everything you couldn't find in the store. Put a price up to a buck and sold out in about two hours the next market. And from that time on, we sold out three to, f- to 500 pounds of potatoes a week for a dollar a pound. And we were sold out by the end of the market. In fact, we made more money on potatoes than we did on berries. So anyway, just you, you never know. Um... These guys do a really great job, and I actually brought handouts, so at some point, somebody maybe can pass these around. Um, uh, For those of you who were in my berry class, I actually went home and put together a bunch of um, uh, information here that uh, would help you with berries and with small farming. So these are the sources I go to for... um, Help and for inspiration when I'm looking for it. So, um, these guys, Jean-Martin Fortier, Curtis Stone, in the field consultants, uh, and then of course the Farmers' Friend folks out here. Um, you know, they're doing a lot of inspiring things on smaller scales. So, small scale is not uh, these guys. So this JM uh, guy, he's they're doing. I think it's 130 dollars to 150000 a year off of an acre and a half. And they have about a 45% net profit from that. So if you think about, one of the things I like to think about is how many people am I trying to support? How much money do I need to support that? And then what is it going to take to bring that money in after taxes um, to, to provide that support? So again, budgeting, but um, just ways that I'm thinking about whether we should scale or not. Again, that goes to the financial goals. What are your lifestyle? Um, how much do you really want to work? Farming's a lifestyle. Don't ever kid yourself that it's not. It's not an eight-to-five job or eight-to-four. It's not even sometimes six-to-eight. Um, it's similar to being a doctor, where that patient's still in the hospital and you're home sleeping, but you're worrying about the patient that's in the hospital. That's farming. So, um, just. It's a huge blessing, it's a huge, um, to me, it's kept my interest going over the years and it's always something new, but, um, it's also a lifelong, lifelong learning process and it's a lifestyle versus, uh, occupation. If you want an occupation, then just garden. (laughs) It's way more fun than the stress of actually farming in full, you know, full, full time if that's not your, uh, not your focus. Um. Market demands, uh, you really should be growing what the market wants. Um, There's great ways to do that. One is surveys, one is to also look at farmers markets, go to the farmers market before it opens and stay till it it closes and what the farmers have left on their tables. A lot of areas, um, the farmers markets have already saturated it, Uh, CSAs are hard to start. One of the big things that's not happening in the northwest is enough winter time production. Uh, you still have to get most of our produce from out of state, um, so that's a huge opportunity for people. And one of the my retirement farm <laughs> is uh, uh, is growing a few things over the summer that you really look forward to eating over the, the summer, like things like melons and tomatoes, and then growing a lot of storage crops, preserving them and storing them, and then selling it all winter um, because I like to. Get out in the woods in the summertime, or mountain bike, and so you can't do that if you're working six days a week on a farm. Um, management procedures: Is your team trained? This really goes back to what I said first. Um, it it is a mindset. You have to, as you scale and add employees or larger operations, you have to get your work done through other people. So you need to become an influencer rather than a. Uh, direct leader of a project and that is a mind shift it's definitely not something we're naturally trained to do so um, I there's a whole lo- list of places I go and actually didn't put them on here but um, Google has done a really great job changing the culture at business and it's something that agriculture has not done a good job of and nobody's talks about it but it's definitely something that's necessary so a um, big thing here is can you maintain the quality when you scale? That's really important. Customers are buying your um, product on quality, usually not on um, quantity. And then, again, financially, and this big question around human capital, uh, can you actually take on more? So appropriate scale matters. I was recently tasked with looking at cranberries and whether or not we could scale and we could actually produce organic cranberries. So most of the cranberries are produced conventionally. um, And we have about 3,000 acres of cranberry bogs in Bandon, Oregon, here in the south um, coast of Oregon. And there's about 1,300 acres in Grayland and Long Beach in Washington. So that's the west coast cranberry production is pretty much just in these two states. So our question was, to manage it appropriately, we needed to hire good quality people. To do that, we've got to pay them. Pretty good amount of money so um, what scale were we going to need to be at so to have a management team um, one of the things you're seeing here is a harvester that's at least three times the width of a normal harvester that bog would take four hours to harvest with the with a regular conventional harvester it takes us 20 minutes to harvest that bog um, so with that kind of equipment so it's that kind of thinking that is always churning in the back of my mind, is how do we do something more efficiently? How do we do it with less? Um, this was also yields on old varieties, so this is something to think about. Old varieties were producing 150 to 200 barrels, a barrel's 100 pounds, so that's 15,000 to 20,000 pounds per acre. The new varieties are producing 400 barrels to the acre, so 40,000 pounds. If my management costs are the same, and I'm doubling the production, just think about how what that does to the bottom line, right? So it's important. So is also scale. So the top left corner here is the cost of managing a 80-acre cranberry farm. About 25, the, the key number I want you to look at is this $2,562.50 per acre. Because, again, I only produce X number of pounds of cranberries per acre, right? But my management costs and overhead costs are always there. It's like, It's like heating the dormitory at college. It's got to be warm. It's not like you can shut it off. So it's a fixed cost. If you put more people in that dormitory, you're making more money, or at least it's costing you less per person. Um, So anyway, same thing. The 150-acre farm, that drops down to $1,833 per acre. And if you have a 200-acre cranberry farm, it drops down to $1,600 an acre. The savings from... 80 acres to $200, 200 acres is $962.50 per acre, okay? so the a huge savings. We have added people. You can see we've added some people to just to take on the acreage, but it's not like we're doubling the team to manage 80 acres versus 200 acres, okay? So just key set of numbers here for you to think about. All I want you to get from this is that um, there is an appropriate scale. For what you're doing. Yes, so uh, the question was uh, what about equipment? How do we think about that? And I have more, um, uh, I have some examples further on down the line, but it's a great question. So it costs us about $400,000 to outfit a a 100 acre blueberry farm. If we're farming 300 acres, it only costs us about a million dollars. So the cost per acre is it significantly decreases to a point. Um, Blueberry harvesters, you can harvest about 60 acres depending upon the varieties if it's spread out. So um, yeah, anyway, way I look at it is if that harvester is going 24 hours a day, six days a week, then it's pretty well maxed out. And if I can't do any more, um, so we have wet weather here. And when it comes to harvesting hazelnuts, if you have early varieties, they'll usually harvest in the dry so you can move almost twice to three times as fast. If it's wet, it's a third as fast. So it's those wet years that stretch everybody to the max and that's when you need three times the equipment. So it's kind of Interesting. Yeah, it's uh it's really depends on what you're growing. So yeah. It's hard to it's hard to like put a fixed number on it, but do you lease your Yeah, so we we lease and then what we do is we do those lease to purchase options a lot of times. Um, and then if it's a piece of equipment that I don't need very often, I'll just rent it um, and and use it that way. And a lot of times I try to get a lot of the big stuff done custom farmed before, and then I'll purchase the smaller equipment that'll be used most of the time. Like we don't need a 500 horsepower tractor after we've planted. We just need it for all the ground prep prior to planting these permanent crops. So iron's not making you any money. It's always depreciating. So everybody wants to go out and buy a new piece of equipment. That is just innate. It's just what you want to do. Don't think it's a bad thing. Don't feel bad about it. It's just exciting to go out and buy a new piece of equipment. But most of the time, we don't need it. So that's the bummer part. <laughs> um, uh, there, There is no... Brene Brown has this saying I thought was pretty applicable to our talk today. There's no innovation and creativity without failure, period. I mean, how many times did it take to make the light bulb? It was like 70 or something like that. So uh, I look at failure with excitement because it means I'm close to the right answer. (laughs) And I'm going to show you some stuff we failed on. So, The Lord desires his workers to make constant improvement. He desires them to work in perfect unity, helping one another. Our talents are diligently traded, as our talents are diligently traded upon, they multiply. Years ago, I never would have thought I would have had the opportunity to lead the building of a 30 million pound blueberry packing facility, but every step of the way I can look back and see where God has provided opportunities, where I've learned things that helped with designing and building that facility, and we talked about it in the Berry Production Thing, but we, we were trying to design the most efficient facility we could. We thought it was going to cost us $0.14 cents a pound. When we got in there and actually operated it, we were down to $0.08 cents a pound on labor costs. So it was a huge blessing. Um, and I just look back over my career, and there's instances where we learned things that really helped in the process of building that facility. So innovation involves two stages. This is by Roger Schwartz from... Uh, Harvard Business Review, the generation of new ideas and the implementation of those those ideas. You've probably all met people who have a lot of great ideas and who haven't ever implemented them. It's just an idea if it's never been implemented. So, um, creativity is considered to be the first stage of the innovation. All the leaves upon a tree, there are no two precisely alike. The Lord does not expect that his workers shall be exactly alike in their skill or in their manner of working. So uh, ask five farmers how to do something. You'll get five different answers, and they all are probably successful farmers. So, again, don't feel bad if the way you're doing it is not the way somebody else is doing it. There's, uh, and this Edward D. Bono person says, there's no doubt that creativity is the most important human resource of all. Without creativity, there will be no progress, and we would be forever repeating the same patterns. What got us here is not what's going to get us there. I talked about this in blueberries. Even though it's a 50-year crop or 80-year crop, I the best management teams and places to invest in is those who, w- who will change with the time. You may not be growing blueberries, but you'll be growing something because you have good soil and you have good water. So um, what people want may change in the future. Um, so on the left is a failure and the right is a success. Um, we On the left, we were trying to figure out how to plant At that time, we were only planting like 50 acres of blueberries a a year. So at that time, it was still pretty small scale, and we were trying to figure out how to plant them with a transplanter, mechanical transplanter, and so we spent $15,000 developing this mechanical transplanter. We actually bought it used, someone else had developed it, and we bought it from them and tried to modify it and change it, and while it worked, the thing that made us stop using this was thinking about the cost savings at planting is so small if you're thinking about this crop being in for 50 years that one you know if you if 10% of the berry plants didn't produce because they weren't planted correctly that can be as much as 2000 pounds of the acre which at organic wholesale prices is about a dollar a pound so you're looking at $2000 an acre which is about 25% of your profit each year so it's a huge number that over the life of, you know, a 50-year crop, you really don't want to be making a mistake at. So we went back to hand planting, even though it was more expensive, Um, but the the benefit was we were at least more hopeful that we got them planted correctly. On the right side, this is a falcon that we use for um, bird control. Um, This is on a 300-acre farm. It costs about $65,000 a year, and we had zero bird damage. Birds here in the West Coast are starlings. That's the big problem bird. Uh, We do have songbirds like robins, um, but you can't really do a lot about them. So the falcon flies um, all day except for about two hours in the middle of the day. Um, And uh, again, we had zero uh, damage to our fruit. Um, And the other method was propane cannons and people riding around on four-wheelers and these noisemaker screecher things, which sound like the distressed noise of a bird being ripped apart very slowly. So it's kind of distressing to the human. To, to me, at least, as I'm walking around, it's this squawking sound, you know, all day long. So this, this thing, these falcons are silent. The local birds don't uh, have any problems with them at all. So the question was, um, how does the falcon work? So the falcon, um, there's, they have four different birds. They fly one at a time. Early in the morning, uh, one of the types of bird, falcons, likes to go around and cruise and, and kind of go through the plants and chase birds. So they bring that one out during the day when the birds aren't quite as active. In the middle of the day, they'll bring out one that just flies up really high, and they call it the cone of death. You can't even see the bird, but he just, he's just down there. Uh, you know, and the starlings don't come in. Uh, and they're, go, you know, they're eating the neighbor's crop who doesn't hire a falcon, but they're not eating our crop. So... The question was, how do you keep the falcon from flying away? The falconer feeds it, so the falcon's trained to know that the falconer is his easiest source of food. Anyway, okay, so um, we were trying to figure out how to, as we scaled up organic blueberry production, this uh, photo here is of a 1,200-acre organic blueberry farm here in the valley that we developed and planted from the very beginning, and we were trying to figure out how do we cover it with... So just because you're organic doesn't mean you don't spray. We still have to apply stuff uh, t- for diseases and pests, especially spotted wing drosophila. And so we were trying to figure out how do you cover the acreage, acreage fast enough? That was one issue because we have these short weather windows here in the Wyoming Valley between rainstorms. You're actually experiencing a more, experiencing a more mild year for us here. But um, So the old method was would use a five-member team to cover about the same acreage. Uh, The new method with these over-the-row sprayers, and I don't actually have the spray booms. It was in my berry class, but they reach out and do five rows at a time over the top. So again, we got rid of helicopters. We got rid of just the the old method would have a tractor with a sprayer like this, just spraying two half rows. And so you'd have to go down every row. So this new sprayer goes down uh, and it covers five rows at a time. So we used three people and a crew, you know, one in each cab and one mixing on a batch truck. Um, they're 20% faster also because they have high capacity tanks on the side, so they stop less. Um, and so they'll pull in, when they're empty, they'll pull in, pull into the row, the b- batch tank drives up, they plug in, and about five minutes later he's full and he's off and going again. So that downtime has really been eliminated. That saves us $45,000 annually. So you think about that over a 10 year period. That's about a half million dollars. Each of those machines costs 300,000. I didn't have time to put the other machines in there, but if you were doing it the other way, you're still looking at a $50,000 tractor and about a $30,000 sprayer, so four times 80,000. So you're looking at 320,000. So buy four machines for the price of one of these um, is kind of the economics on the machines. And then they also mow. And so they'll mow two rows instead of one at a time with the tractor. So they're actually mowing right now. And you can see the cuttings from the other uh, thing. I wish I had a pointer. I don't have one. But, um, so the old method of mowing would have used four people to mow the same amount. The new method uses two team members and each one of these machines another $45,000 in savings annually a year. Um, so, we had an old orchard. We had 800 acres of old hazelnut orchards. You can kind of see the with leaves behind this um, pruning machine here and with no leaves here on the right. We were, we were pruning them down by hand. We wanted to prune the tops down to get uh, new growth regeneration happening in the, in the trees. And um, we were doing it with pruning towers, and it was costing us well over $1,200 an acre. And we thought, there's got to be a better way to do this. So a little bit of internet searching. There's a company in California that makes these pruning towers that go up on top of the tractor. I actually don't have a video of it uh, doing it. But that unfolds up like this and goes through the canopy at an angle like this, and it's spinning. So the, the whole mechanism up there spins, plus those saw blades are spinning. It just cuts off the top of the tree. And so it's going down through there. It's cutting that off. That cost us only about $250 an acre, so there's about $1,000 an acre savings between the cost of doing it by hand or doing it with a machine. That machine, that unit on that tractor, the tractor is about a $50,000 tractor, and that unit on top was, I think, another $30 or $40, maybe $45. We used it on that 800 acres to bring it down, and then we sold it to a farm in California for $30, so um, (laughs) pretty much got our money back out of it. The machine on the right is an electrostatic sprayer that we used in the orchards. Um, uh, The sprayer is on the back. The front is a low-profile, high-horsepower tractor. Um, That had about a $65,000 savings going from an electrostatic sprayer. What happens is we reduce the spray rate per acre because it's electrostatically charged positively. It goes out there and covers the trees, so our coverage was a lot better. Um, and uh, that had, uh, we could cover, um, they would cover five acres conventionally with a non-electrostatic sprayer, and we were covering 20 acres with these new electrostatic sprayers. This was a, a weed control um, device we built for in the blueberries. Um, we were trying to figure out how to mow the edges of the weed fabric. If you were in the berry thing, you saw this picture already. Um, but we. Got this in. So this is one of the out products of the innovation team. We took people from all over the company and from accounting, from uh, the safety person, from the agronomist, the guys out on the farm and put them into an innovation group and said, hey, we need to figure out a solution to uh, lowering the cost of our weed control. And this is what they came up with and built it in our shop. So um, again, one of those situations where you're, Flattening the management of the of the project Um, If you don't have the acreage, this is also works just as good. It's a zero-turn mower Um, You can slide those up on the edge the mower deck if you put a mulching blade kit on it You can mow right up next to that fabric with the with the deck and the pruning You know the grass clippings will go straight down So we actually now those are $10,000 that other unit cost 45,000 to make (laughs) So we now buy those zero turns and then just run them until we're, the, we're like the largest landscaper in Oregon because, because of all the acreage we mow on the farms every year. Um, this was a device that was created out of necessity. When we plant, you can see blueberries planted here on the, both sides, the fabric. Um, dirt was getting mounded up on the edge of the fabric and we really want a really level um, bed in there uh, in between so we can plant grass. And so the guys took this in the shop, and they built these wings, and that's actually on the right side. Actually, it's a rubber flap, so it won't tear up the fabric. So just designing things that you need. Um, uh, the question was, how long will the fabric last? It'll last about 10 years. Okay, and then it. Yeah, and then you recycle it and replace it. So there's an electric eye that sees the tree, and then just turns on the conveyor to uh, basically puke sawdust out just on the tree. <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty cool, right? There's a guy that figured out how to do this with um, cow manure, and he, he goes along and dumps out cow manure right around the tree. Yeah, you could watch this all day. This is, like, pretty cool. Okay, so the old method was um, five, what was it? Uh, yeah, six people. We had two RTVs, or gators, and we had sawdust in the back, and we're shoveling it out like this, and one, one person's driving. And we're like, there's got to be a better way, because we were, fo- Oh, thanks. That's awesome. The, block, the green one, yeah. The green button. Okay. So um, we would hand shovel out a green scoop of sawdust on every tree. And we were looking at developing um, 1,200 acres of hazelnuts That then the next two years. And we just thought, we can't do. There's things we can't do. So we all got together in the wintertime. And there, we, the, somebody in our team found online somewhere that somebody had put an eye on something else, I think it was, to see something. And um, they're like, hey, we could get this. So it cost us... Here's the numbers here. So the kit, the kit costs $1,705, $1,200 for the eye, and $500 to install it. We already own the tractor and the sprayer spreader. So the old method was $216 an acre. It was five acres per, sh- per day, six people, $18 an hour, total cost. Remember, Don't forget, what you pay people is not your total cost of the employee. It's really important that you have the whole load burden in there so you know exactly what people are costing. The new method cost, we could do 50 acres per day with three people, $20 $20 an hour, 10-hour shift, same time period, but we're doing 50 acres versus five. So the new method was $12 an acre. It took two hours to pay off that investment. (laughs) So, um, uh, Oh, and one of the things we found out by putting LEDs on here, that it'll see the tree at night. So we go 24 hours a day. Yeah. Yeah, it was great, so we'd have two shifts. So this was our cost savings, okay, 1,200 acres, savings of $204 an acre. We saved $244,000 one year, or two years, two years. We planted 1,200 acres in two years. So this is my home garden. Um, We have 10 acres um, uh, south of here, about two hours south of here, and we have um, water rights, but, Yeah, so as I, it seems as though I couldn't get enough um, during my regular job, which is farming, so I come home and garden like this, but um, yeah, so you probably have all seen a lot of this stuff, this isn't probably new to anybody who's on the small scale already, but uh, I guess just gives you some idea how I was thinking about it. I get tired if I'm still not efficient at home. I mean, it's not like I go home and that, that part of my brain shuts off, so, and I plant randomly around a garden, you know. That just doesn't happen. So the, that English rambling garden thing doesn't happen. Uh, I was planting flowers out in the flower bed, and every time my wife would come out and see, what are you doing? You planted them in rows again. <laughs> I'm like, random. So I tried random. Like, I worked really hard at random. She comes out on the deck and she looks at, she's like, they're still in rows. I'm like, no way, they're random. So from the angle I was at, it looked random. From the other, you went around the other side, it was all in rows. It's like, honestly. Yeah. So this is a BCS with a rotary plow. Believe it or not, that BCS is about 30 years old. I just put a new motor on it, but uh, and have had the transmission worked on. But, uh, yeah, I wouldn't bother buying anything else. I, that BCS was pretty... Pretty great. Um, This potatoes. So all I did there was um, actually put a little um, a little rod on the edge of the uh, BCS that stuck out like this, and I put a little flag on it, and then I ran a string, and then I just that's how I got those rows that straight. So that's non-GPS, obviously. (laughs) And uh, so I I I garden in 100 foot beds because it's more efficient. (laughs) So this is using the rotary plow to um, hill potatoes. I've got the drip drip tape down there. Um, This is actually hilling. So right here on the side, I'm driving right beside that potato plant. And um, I've got wheel extensions on it. I took them off. It was actually much easier to use with them off. And I found that most of what I did, I wanted it to be off anyway. So there's hilled potatoes on the right side. I made a huge mistake this year. No, right on the edge. Yeah. You can see the potato plant. It's like, it's going to, the tire does miss it. Yeah, no, I wasn't driving on them. Yeah, it looks like it, but it's not. Um, These are, again, these are farmer's friend um, uh, hoop houses. And so this is where I did my potato production. I don't have, this old um, BCS is only 8.5 horsepower. And so it won't run that rotary. Harrow the power harrow, Uh, so I would. I'm actually. I gave I give away all the produce. If I actually sold some of it, I could probably justify buying a new one so I could get a rotary harrow. But um, so I have a tiller. That's all I have: uh, rotary plow and tiller. But um, the harrow is a lot better to use. Um, We get we plant on 30 inch beds, and we use um, I use silage tarps. Weeds in Oregon grow year-round. No, they don't ever go dormant. So we have a whole batch of winter weeds, spring weeds, summer weeds, fall weeds, and winter weeds again. So <laughs> we're blessed that way. <laughs> I have two rows in between um, this, and actually never did get the, fa- the plastic on the top, but I used them for that trellis system. That's those um, trellis eyes up on top, and I ran a aircraft cable down through there to trellis our... Um, Uh, Tomatoes, there's planted tomatoes. I cover the whole thing with uh, weed fabric. um, I didn't burn holes in it, and you'll see that in a minute. So there's staked, and unfortunately, I don't have any pictures of them fruiting. Um, That's when we were residing and putting new windows in our house, so yeah. Again, this is um, tilling, um, I have a tractor with a spader to do the uh, major tillage, uh, and then I drive. The tractor is, has narrow enough tires that 30 inches is the center between the tires, so to make my rows, I can just drive down and then drive back, and it puts an 18-inch walkway and leaves me with a 30-inch raised bed. And if I want that bed higher, then I take that rotary plow and go down there, down one side and down the other, and it throws the dirt up, so I can make a taller bed if I if I wanted a taller bed for something. I and I garden ten beds, and then a hedgerow, which I'm putting fruit crops in, and then another ten beds. So it's all patterned, and then I can um, rotate. I have seven of those. Um, annual bed crop sections so I can rotate and one of them is always resting every year so it's like seven What is that seven year rest period? So I don't rest the whole farm every seven years, but I rest a block every seven years This is how we made um, the patterns in the fabric planting patterns. So I just took plywood cut it 30 inches wide mapped out my pattern on it and then used a hole saw uh, with a drill to hole saw those out and then I take a small propane torch I lay the fabric down the bed, or you can lay it on gravel, and then take a small propane torch, and I just torch around those holes. Uh, it's really fast, and then I slide it down so the hole lines up with the last pat- last hole that was burned in the pattern, and burn the next section. So it's pretty fast. Uh, and then the, I use two rows of T tape. You can see how they line up between the planting rows. Um, so that's what we're doing for weed control. So this is what broccoli looks like, (laughs) planted on that. Are you reusing your tarp at all? Yeah. Every year I roll it up and move it to another field or or, uh, reuse it in the same field if it's the same crop spacing. Um, Pole beans, um, I found pole beans are way better tasting than bush beans, and I'm too tall to pick bush beans anymore, so. I think it's faster to pick them, but um, the other thing I found is that you get these this row started, and it's up there quite a ways. Go ahead and plant another row on the other side. Um, you want to do it on the non-shady side of, of the row, but you can get another crop going on the same trellis, so you can go a lot longer. You can pick almost um, I think six weeks to to eight weeks from the same trellis by by seeding twice down there. So. Um, on the left, this I planted on the left two rows that came up, and that's what you see on there right now. And then I went on the right side, well, there's no right or left. It's actually, it looks like it's right in the middle. But I would just go right down there and plant another row of beans when these are about halfway up. So they'll go up, start flowering, and the next batch is coming up. Uh, um, this was, a, uh, we talked about this in the berry. I found this actually last night um, and put it in here today. So this is the picking car, um, platform table that we made, designed, and built to, to handle fresh uh, packing of blackberries and blueberries in the field. And so um, one of the things I really get frustrated with is inefficient movement. And so when our crew is out there, uh, think about this. Uh, if you're left, if you're right-handed, you need to move things from your left to your right hand. So this is the motion you should be thinking about. So if you're grabbing something, washing it, and then putting it in a bin, it should be from left to right. And if you're left-handed, it should be the other way. It's just, trust me, it's it's more efficient. So um, on this berry cart, you're pulling it backwards, walking backwards down the berry row, and you're picking, you're picking everything off, and you're putting it in clamshells, or you're putting it in buckets if it's not you know, premium grade, if it's not really great, perfect fruit for fresh quality. So we have our um, boxes and clamshells on the bottom, and on the top table we have the ones we're filling right now, plus two discard buckets, one that's, not, that's garbage and one that's juice grade or frozen grade compared to the fresh pack here. Well, if you're going on the right side, you're always going opposite and you're fumbling the whole entire time. If you're right-handed and you're... Your row is here and your stuff's here. If you're left-handed, you're picking and you can actually be packing with your right hand while you're picking with your left hand. So don't forget to think about just the human movement in all of the things that you're doing. There is a way that's more efficient for you and it's different for every person. But you really need to understand your crop and when to pick it because you can be disappointing your customers the entire time. This French melon isn't ripe. Until when you twist it on the vine, that vine should come off really easy, and there's a, and there's juice um, coming out of the end of this. You can eat it earlier, but it has no aromatic flavor, and it's not going to be. It's just not going to taste right. So, um, we sold these for over. They're five dollars a piece in the farmers market, but um, they're also really fussy to grow. Okay, so there's innovation in um, varieties too. It's not just your farming practices, and this goes to the what I was talking about earlier about spreading out the, the labor and the work, and having the cash flow year-round. So, the, the this on the right is a Christmas melon that my friend, um, Ayers Creek Farms, um, bred himself uh, over time. He did selective breeding and, and um, got this. We grew this last year, and we ate. We ate. Um, we didn't have it stored quite right, but we ate the last melon the 1st of December. So you pick this in September and put this in storage, and you should build it. In, not cold storage. This is actually stored at like 65 degrees or, war, or, well, between, I think it's like 60, something like that. And then same with this um, squash. This squash will last until March uh, if stored correctly. So this is a squash that he bred. It's out of a... Um, I can't remember what it originated from, but he bred it over time. So just something to think about. Yeah, this all open pollinated, all organic, yep. He actually has cancer, and um, uh, he, our family felt like we needed to carry on this tradition of his seeds because not he doesn't sell them. And so we got some of his seed from him, and we grew them this year, and we saved them. So we're looking forward to um, doing that over, you know, hopefully expanding that or at least keep that seed strain going but um, yeah so the what's in the future right uh, this is a little robotic <laughs> garden weeder it has a little tiny um, weed whacker underneath it that just kind of goes zzzz, and then if the thing crawls around your garden at night looking for weeds yeah like what's that rumbo thing or the you know the vacuum inside the house or whatever yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's, like, huge scale, and I'm not sure I'd let it out in a carrot field or, you know, like a new (laughs) little field, but come back in the morning, and it's, like, all gone, but um, I just thought I'd throw that in there because, uh, you know, the new and shiny is not always the best way either, so just, I just temper it, but, uh, okay, we'll take questions. Yes yeah um, on the large farms um, we actually have a flyover every week but it's not with a drone it's actually with just with an air airplane and it's um infrared camera and they're running uh, what we're learning from that is how the irrigation's working or not working and where we have weak areas in the field and then we can send agronomists right out to those areas to look at it they can pull soil samples so it's not telling us what's wrong but it's telling us that there's something not right That farm I'm talking about is 3,000 acres and it's six and a half miles long and a mile wide. So it's a lot of plants, individual care. So, yeah. yeah. We also started an agronomy training program where we train everyone on the farm in agronomy. So they know they have little picture books, they have everything. So as they're mowing every row, they can send uh, photos up to the agronomist hey, I see a problem out here. Um, same with when, a, when an equipment piece of equipment breaks down, they can s- tell the mechanic team. So we have a f- three, four agronomists, and then we had like five mechanics. And so you could bring the part with you. It just saved everybody a lot of time. And my partners were getting all mad about I was giving iPhones to everybody, you know. And I'm like, well, look at the cost savings. Just you know, a four-hour repair versus a half-hour repair because they came with the right part. So. Uh, good question what do I use for a nitrogen source so it depends on what we're um, fertilizing Um, on the blueberry side they don't like salt so we try to stay away from animal sources on that so we're looking at um, like yard debris waste compost we're actually using a product that's um, uh, digested out of its grocery store waste and it's digested, and it's a liquid fertilizer, and we like that a lot. Um, it has fairly good protein, it's about, or nitrogen, sorry. It's a, about a 4% nitrogen, I think it is. It's liquid fertilizer. But um, there's a company here in Oregon that does pelleted chicken manure, so it's heat treated, so you don't have to have, you're not, it doesn't under that uh, raw, manure. raw manure category, yeah, so it's, that's good, we'll use that. And then we've used um, soybean, digested soybeans, and corn before. So um, that's liquid Why um, digested versus just raw. Yeah. So the plants don't take. It takes a long time for that to break down and become available to the plant. And compost has a half-life too. So if you're putting on a compost that's say a two percent uh, nitrogen. That year, you're only getting half of it, and it's taking a long time for it to release. So it's great to put on compost, but you're actually, with that compost, you're mainly looking at building for the future. It's that nutrient cycling is not happening very quickly. So Uh, the question was, um, how is our drip irrigation set up when we have rolling hills? So it's actually pressure compensating. So each emitter is pressure compensating. That works pretty well, it's not perfect. So on those cases I was running, what was I doing? I think I was pushing the water up the hill, rather than down the hill. So I was pushing it up with more pressure, and we were still maintaining 14 pounds at the end. We're starting at uh, like 20 pounds. You don't want more than about a 10 pound pressure loss in your line, Um, or and then you need to have about 12 pounds at the other end to actually have enough pressure to flush the line properly. So you got to get out there. The question was, do we fertigate, and do we? what do we do if the lines plug up? So we actually had a system plug up, um, and we injected citric acid um, uh, in it on a hot day. We injected it as full as we could, so as high concentration as we could. And then we... Um, shut the system off, let it sit there for four hours in the heat. It effectively boiled this stuff. It was a mineral deposit. That was a problem in the emitter. Um, it turned it into a gel. And then we cranked up the irrigation system as much pressure as we could without blowing things up. Turned off, you know, this is a 20 acre field. So we turned off all these valves. So we're just doing 10 rows at a time with high pressure and flushed out those lines and actually we was able to clean it out. To prevent that, we now, on the large operations, it's organically certified to use a chlorine gas in there to keep algae and things from growing. So there's another product that uh, CH2O puts out um, that they use to keep the lines clean. And it's basically, I think it's like a uh, concentrated hydrogen peroxide or something. I mean, on a small scale, just flushing the lines out. And and then on a small scale, it, If you're small enough, you can fertilize by hand and not put it through there. That's what I would do. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.